Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Pinar. Every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. Today, I have the privilege to welcome an incredible storyteller to the podcast. Sarah Kamalo is the first black African woman to have summited Everest and reach the South Pole. She's also a motivational speaker, transformational coach, and a very successful corporate executive. In our conversation, I find myself captivated by Sarah's story, and especially about why she started mountaineering and how she failed at summiting Everest three times before eventually succeeding on her fourth attempt. What makes that story more fascinating is how her first two attempts got canceled as events around her actually caused people to die. And how on her third attempt, she failed an excruciating 99 meters short of the summit and almost died herself. Yet, she had to go back because she had not yet succeeded at pursuing her whole purpose. As Sarah tells her powerful story, we spoke about why it's important for everyone to figure out their why and their unique purpose in life. We also discuss imposter syndrome, how everyone that achieves great things in life is super scared at times, and why it's important to pursue your highest aspirations without any delay. Shara shares that she doesn't believe that the sky is the limit, as her mother used to tell her as a kid. When she stood on the summit of Everest, above the clouds, she knew that she had broken beyond her own supposed limits. I hope you're just as inspired by Sarah's story as I am. Let's jump straight into it. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here to share this platform with you. Likewise. And, and for me, always, most of my kind of network and audience over the years that I've built with, you know, at least five of my businesses have been international. So it's always a great privilege to have a fellow South African on the podcast you know, and to be able to have these great conversations. Absolutely. It's always great to speak to the people at home because they relate to you, they know you, they they can correct you, you know, and, and if they can benefit from the little that I know, that would be fantastic. And I'm always, you know, ears out to learn myself because we grow every day with every interaction. That's awesome. And I I doubt, by the way, that I will correct you on kind of anything today, especially since I think there's definitely a few things that I already know about you that I know nothing about, right? So definitely (laughs) not correcting you. But let's start here. For the listeners that have not met Sarah Kamalo, I would love to kind of, you know, for you to quickly introduce yourself, right? And what I'm really curious about is in that kind of introduction, like in how you tell people about yourself, like, are there any labels that you tend to use frequently? (laughs) Absolutely. I think uh, for me, being an African woman is a label that I wear so proudly. You know, it's one that over the years has been seen as maybe second class or third class citizen almost, you know. And I wear it proudly because, you know, it's time for us to, to say, I am an African woman. I have something to say. I can contribute and I can change the world. You know, and that's a label that I wear so proudly. Also wear a label as a mother, you know, absolutely proud to be a mother to two amazing boys. I think it's a gift that God gives us to be able to, you know, raise people to be good citizens around the world. I am the first black African woman to summit Everest and also do the last degree ski to the South Pole. I'm an executive at one of the financial institutions, but 
you know, I'm also just a sister. I'm one of seven sisters and I'm a neighbor. I'm just somebody that's striving to optimize their time on this earth before my end comes, which is the fate of us all. And like, just in that way, that's a mouthful. There's loads of achievements there already. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, Sarah, is like, that seems like a very full life. I generally don't like the idea of kind of, you know, people describing, like if people ask me like, hey, AD, like how are things going? And like that kind of glib answer of, hey, I've just been busy. Like, I don't like the word busy, but I love the idea of living a full life. What I would love to know for you, like having such a full life, such a full and diverse life, right? Kind of, how do you fit everything in? How do you decide what to do, what not to do? Like just generally, how do you think about kind of filling the space and time that you have available? It's all about choices and prioritizing. I think one of the revelations that I had not too far off from now is that, you know, we actually have 24 hours and what can I do with the 24 hours? So I divide it in three, I give eight hours to my boss, you know, momentum multiply, they put food on my table and I've got the remaining 16 hours, you know, between sleeping, my family and me. And I generously give myself my time, you know, and that is something that I've been able to do not throughout my life. It's something that I just woke up to, to say, I only have one life and one chance to make an impact. And it starts with leading myself making an impact in myself so if it's important to me i make a plan and i make it a priority at that specific point but at the same time is sacrificing other things and being deliberate about it so a good example is for the longest time i didn't have any sponsors in terms of climbing i had to give up changing the car more uh, so frequently having a new car give up on holidays because i needed to go climb everest and it's not cheap so i need to save a little bit more i you know so life is about choices and if the choice that you're making is deliberate and helps you move forward in terms of where you want to go then that's it you take it and don't look back if it turns out not to be a great choice figure out what you've learned from it and keep moving and that's what it's about yeah, I love that. And I, I wonder, and I'll preface it slightly, because one of the things as I was writing my book, Life of Ability, that is out in January, like one of the things that I learned through that, in terms of the kind of etymology of the word priority, like priority back in the day meant one thing, a single thing. It's only in the kind of modern Western world that we butchered that to say kind of there are, like there's a plural, right? There can be priorities, right? So I'm wondering like, in making those choices, is there like like a single thing, a single sentence, but you say like, I will take this on if this meets this kind of standard or barrier yeah. crosses this bar. Like, is there that yeah. one thing that you have perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really my story in a point where things shifted in my life. It's when I figured what my why was, you know, what, what's my purpose? And, and that didn't come in a romantic way or I, did some formula. I had to search for it. I, I didn't figure out until it was like, oh, flip, this is it. You know, I was telling you before we started that I was sitting at, at work. I was working for one of the most uh, progressive and innovating companies in the, the country. And uh, at seven o'clock in the evening, I was sitting there. In fact, I actually thought I was the only one in the office, but there was somebody else in there, which tells you how much of a workaholic I can be. And I got a call to say I'd lost my sister. So I'm one of seven girls and she is the first born. She was the first born and I'm the second. And I started questioning whether she had lived her purpose, whether she had done everything that she was meant to do. Maybe 
I'm sure she had. Maybe one of it is just kicking me in the butt to say, hey, come on, get on with your life and like do a bit more, right? And I tended on myself to say, is what I'm doing really a life of service? Because I grew up with a grandfather that always used to say, if your life is not lived as a life of service, it's a life wasted. As a youngster, you don't really understand what he's saying. That kind of rang true for me at that specific time. And I started questioning everything. You know, is just having a job, having a car, having a house, you know, a husband and children, going to work, church during the weekend, is that it? That's what society and the world sees as a norm. But is that is that enough? Is that truly me? Or is that what I think they expect from me and I'm ticking a box? And I just figured I was ticking a box. You know, I quit my job, lost <laughs> quite a, a few shares there. But I haven't looked back. And I, I went to work in a post office, you know, uh, which um, is crazy. Having come from first ranch to the post office, you know, no shares anymore quite unionized. And I just remember this gentleman whose name I'm not going to mention, who was used to say, Sarah, we've been doing this like this for 34 years, you know? So it's, it's just like, oh my goodness, I can't change this world, you know? And the reason I went there was because we had these people that had come from the private sector and we were going to revolutionize the post office, the post bank, and make sure that we are able to bank the unbanked profitably. And it's the time when the four banks were not really interested in the Mzanzi account. So I thought, this is it. I'm going to change the world here in a way. And, and it wasn't. And uh, what ended up being the thing, which is the path that I'm on, is actually just a simple thing as climbing up uh, Kilimanjaro, which I absolutely love the outdoor, and using that to make a difference in children's lives through education. We built an outdoor gym for a home in Benoni, Kids Heaven, and converted a room into a library. And during the handover, although the summit happened on, on Kili, one of the kids in the home came to me and said, do you really come from the township? You know, initially it was like a joke because we always used to like hang around with them, take them for hiking and stuff. And I thought, yeah, do black people kind of swim kind of joke? And no, she was serious. Like people like us don't do things like this. We have exchange students that come from Germany when they leave, they then do things like this, you know. And I came home as a mother of two boys. I wondered whether I was doing enough to show my sons that help comes from within. You know, that it doesn't matter who they are, what their circumstances are today, they too can change the world and they need to look within before they look elsewhere. And that was the time that I made a decision to actually do the seven highest peaks around the world and use them to raise money for education because it is the equalizer. And I haven't looked back. Even when it's tough, I mean, you probably know that I've, I attempted Everest four times and everybody says, you're crazy, why go back? When you understand what your why is, your how is easy. It, it, it's a given. I'm going to Pretoria. The highway is blocked. I find N14 and I get to Pretoria because Pretoria doesn't suddenly go to the south. It's still where it was, and that's where I'm going, you know. It's such a blessing and a privilege, and, and I just wish many people could get that, you know. And I think we would live a life of purpose. Totally, and literally, like again, people can't don't have the benefit of video, so like, and you probably can't see because my camera is not that great, right? But I've goosebumps and like so many nuggets there that I would love to kind of Thank dig you. into. That's just a kind of beautiful story, right? So I would love for you just to take us back 
quickly, right? And yeah. kind of, when was that kind of first moment where you decided to at least climb Kili, right? Because it yeah. sounds like once you had climbed Kili, built the library, right, had that experience, you, you then decided to pursue kind of this greater you know, philanthropic effort of, you know, summiting seven different kind of mountains, right? But taking back to that kind of first moment, like, where were you? Why you know, Kilimanjaro? <laughs> why mountaineering? Like, why, why not run yeah. 50 Ironman in 50 yeah. days, right? Yeah. Or kind of, you know, why like, like that one specifically? I actually always say I'm an accidental mountaineer because the story is so unrelated. In 96, I was visiting the U.S., and I had gone there, I mean, you would realize I used to watch quite a lot of TV. I had gone there after having watched Coming to America, which just showed that Americans are all knowing and all powerful and, you know, obviously. And I got there and I realized that, no, they were not. They were asking me about their friend in Nigeria and their friend in Ghana. And I'm like, no, man. You know, until somebody said to me, have you ever climbed Kilimanjaro? And I said, no. And they went to town about it, right? And I thought, that is my story. So then Kilimanjaro made it onto my bucket list. And, and so I really am an accidental mountaineer, you know? And, and in my chaos of trying to find my why after losing my sister, somebody actually said to me, oh, they are climbing Kilimanjaro. And I thought, it's always been on my bucket list. This is 2012. And, and I got to learn about Kilian that, is climbing in, you know, in 96. So I said, I'll do it. And as we were like preparing, I just thought, you know, why don't we use it? Because I had read about people that climb and they raise money. Why don't we use it to actually raise money for the home? So yeah, that's how I got into it. I enjoyed it so much. Having said that, I was always, I grew up as a part of the Pathfinder Club which is like the scouts, but for my church. So we did a lot of outdoor camping and not very nice things where they lose you in the bush and you need to figure out where they are. And they were not very user-friendly, but you know, you think about those things so, so fondly, you know, it's like they, they're making you strong for a time when life is tough, I suppose. So I've always been passionate about the outdoor, but not necessarily sporty. Gotcha, gotcha. My wife knows that can I give me anything that has a computer, kind of a keyboard and I can probably fix it, right? I'm reluctantly kind of a handyman. So I like the idea of being dropped somewhere like in a kind of in a bush and just saying like, <laughs> figure it out. Like that's not something that appeals to me. But I can, what I can imagine is, is you kind of develop a skill to orientate yourself and find a way, which, you know, in today's kind of you know, complex society is, is probably not a bad skill to have, right? It's, it's, you, there's no lions that might be kind of you're chasing you, but there's probably kind of, you know, you know, more existential metaphorical lions that are out there that you are avoiding because you develop those navigational skills. Absolutely. You know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about during this process of me trying to find my why, I decided to actually go back to church and started leading a Pathfinder group. And one of the fundamental differences was every time I proposed, let's go camping, the kids are like, is there Wi-Fi? The parents says, is there pool? Are there chalets? And I'm thinking, this is, this is actually... What happened? I guess it's a different time, you know, camping. I, I've now come to know of a term called glamping, glamour camping. It's like totally different world. <laughs> and I have to admit that that is the kind of camping that I do like to, to again, like... <laughs> 
But I digress. So you do killing, right? And you're inspired to kind of, you know, go down this path and you eventually decide to kind of do Everest. And like the, the bit that I would really kind of want to kind of, you mentioned you did it a couple of times for listeners. Sarah accomplished it on her fourth time, second and third time, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't happen due to external factors, right? But I would love for you to tell us about the first time, because what ultimately happened was you were about 100 meters short of summit and then could not finish. Like, take us to that experience. Yeah, that was actually the third time when that happened. The first time was 2014. In 2014, I found myself on on Everest. But when I look back, I think that I shouldn't have been there. All I had done was Kili. I had gone to France, to Chamonix, to train ice climbing, working with crampons and so forth. And I got there and I was the least experienced. I had such huge imposter syndrome. I think the next least experienced person than me was somebody that had been climbing for five years. But there was a lot of nuggets that I carried from that experience, you know. The first being, I decided that they obviously didn't expect me to be any good at it. They were going to avoid me during the climb because, you know, you can kill other people in the process if you don't know what you're doing, right? And I ran and I wanted to prove to them I changed my strategy completely to try and match how fast they were going to Everest Base Camp and do everything right because, you know, I needed to belong. And when I got to Everest Base Camp and we tried to try and acclimatize to Pumuri camp, which is a higher camp, just 200 meters above Everest base camp. I crashed. I got there two and a half hours after everybody in the team had done that because I got to Everest base camp after having rushed. I got so tired. I slept. I stopped doing things that worked for me until I got to Everest base camp. But having said that, that season was closed because on the 18th of April, 2014, a big Sirac fell on the pathway to Camp 1 and killed 16 shepherds, and the mountain was closed and we were all asked to leave Everest. And the, the one profound thing during this uh, season, apart from all the learnings that I got in terms of how to prepare myself differently, is that the people that I had looked up to that I thought were amazing, you know, they were eating the mountain, they were just as scared as I was. One of them actually ran off Everest Base Camp on seeing the bodies being picked from Kumbu Icefall onto Everest Base Camp. And it was very clear that this was a personal decision. Everyone had to make their own decisions in terms of why they're there and whether they still want to climb. You know, all the romantic notions about, you know, summiting Everest, it's amazing was gone because it's no longer a documentary that I was watching or a book that I had read about bodies on Everest. I actually saw the bodies, you know, and and I came home and had to reflect on whether I I still wanted to climb. And I made a decision that I I was going to still do that because my why hadn't changed. And, you know, I don't stop driving on N1 because people died on N1. I drive a lot more carefully. So I had two pages of things that worked out for me, despite not summiting, and half a page of things that didn't work out. I started running, I started cycling, because I saw the cyclists and the runners were having a better time, so a lot more cardio. And I went back in 2015. In 2015, I was between Camp 1 and Camp 2, when the earthquake hit, I mean, the biggest earthquake uh, Nepal had had in 80 years, which killed over 9,000 people in Nepal and about 22 people at at Everest Base Camp. 
again, I was saved, uh, you know, f um, during that, um, that earthquake. The one thing that I've really come to accept and appreciate is, is the fact that, yes, we all have a time that we are born and we have a time that we die, but the time that moves the dial, that makes a difference, is the time in between. And everyone, the people that had died the year before, they were a lot more experienced than I was, uh, probably than I am today, because one of them had even summited Everest 13 times, but it was their time. The point is, were they doing what they loved doing? Had they fulfilled their purpose? I think those are the questions that we would rather ask rather than, is what I'm doing dangerous? Because even if I lock myself in my room, I'll definitely die, right? You know, and so I kept going back because, and, and I'll still go back because I just, I love it. I'm doing it for me. And it's a way that I can make a difference um, for other people. And it just really humbles you. It helps you see how in the untamed nature, we are really a speck in the bigger scheme of things. You know, you, you stay in the concrete jungle with all the internet and everything. You just think we are it, you know, but no. You know, there's a whole world out there that humbles you. Anyway, I went back 2017. Two things that I want to echo there, which I don't think, sorry, like, I think people often miss this because they look at successful people regardless of what their success was in, right? And they, they think these people must be fearless, right? They love risks, right? And at least from my experience, most people, like I know myself, I do not like taking risks. I take risks every single day because I know that there's no way for me to make progress without taking risks, right? I've done many things that I'm absolutely fearful of. And I also love every time I get on a stage to do public speaking, like I am anxious beforehand, but I absolutely love it. And I know that like you can't do those two things, right? And I think, so that's what I heard you kind of saying yeah, there as well, is like yeah. you do these things and there's definitely emotions there, right? Yeah, that was the first absolutely. thing. And the second part of it was just this, and again, it's something that I got into in my book and just from personal experiences, sometimes when we pursue these big things in our life, we try and sequence things. Like people will, for example, build a business and they say, for the next 10 years, I will totally sacrifice everything else in my life because it's totally gonna to be worthwhile in 10 years time. And the reality is sometimes like the universe just decides you're not gonna have 10 years. Exactly. Right? And I think to your point is like, if kind of the universe calls time on our mortal lives, right? And we leave our bodies here, right? The question is like, did we make progress towards those things that were truly like our purpose, like truly part of ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I think it's it's the agency. When we take for granted that tomorrow is coming, we become complacent. But when we realize that tomorrow is not guaranteed, we have the sense of agency to achieve whatever it is that our Everest is, you know. Yeah, so then in 2017, I went back a lot more wiser, you know, and I trained differently, obviously, building on to 2015. 2016, by the way, I couldn't go back because I didn't have enough money and no one was willing to fund me. In fact, I was even told, well, who's the man that's taking us? You know, no black female has done this. I mean, people are just... I think we should judge people by their ability, not what they look like, not, you know, they haven't done it before. Sometimes it's important to just keep cut people some slack, right? And yeah, so I, uh, 2016, yeah, I didn't go. Um, in the process, I was still cycling and running. I had quite a bad mountain bike accident. If you can see scars on my face and I was participating in a stage race and on the 8th of August 2016 I was coming down the mountain on the second day and I didn't realize that I had lost my back brakes 
and at probably just over 40 kilometers an hour, I hit the pavement at the bottom and I was flown off. I cracked my helmet, my head quite badly, and I spent three weeks in ICU, in a coma, then ICU. And I came out not even thinking about, you know, climbing at that point, just surviving, really. And I remember the doctor saying, you know, don't get back on the bike because if you hit your head again, you know, it might not put Humpty Dumpty together again, you know. I started walking in September. October, I started running. November, I had a Soweto Marathon entry. I went and ran the Soweto Marathon. But the idea was, let me do a 21. Let me downgrade. And I got there, the guys doing 42 were singing. They were, I'm like, oh, let me just, if I end at 30, so what, right? And I did the 42 and I finished and I got a medal. The next day I was at Mill Park. I'm like, doctor, I finished 42 kilometers. Surely I can still climb. I think the poor man just <laughs> didn't want to argue with me. He's like, <laughs> come three weeks before you leave and see me. And then, yeah. And I was back on Everest. And this time I went all the way up to the South Summit, which is 99 meters from the top. You know, it's really a testament of so close and yet so far. We can never take anything for granted. I mean, you are in business. I'm sure, you know, when it's almost year end, you don't say, no, we've got this. I mean, we, we were talking about the elections uh, in, in America. Nothing is a given until it's like, yeah, we've counted and we've finished, right? You cannot afford to be complacent. And so should our life be. Don't be complacent. Don't think you're there. You can be better, you know. And we got to the South Summit. It was windy. It was really quite bad. And I remember getting there the first time I looked at my ship and I looked behind all my teammates were not there and I asked him said no one with everybody said gone back two weeks and I'm thinking hey doing well girl until I saw him so he changed my oxygen tank uh, we drank a, a, a little bit and he started walking and I saw him struggling as much as I was so he, he had been climbing for I think he had 23 years experience at that time and if he's struggling and I'm struggling, there definitely is a problem. At the time, the winds were like 60 or so kilometers an hour. And at the ridge, if anything goes wrong, you'll be blown off either to Nepal or Tibet and you'll never be found, right? So I said to him, Nawang, I have extra oxygen, which I always did. I would buy extra oxygen in case something goes wrong. We can, you know, we've got additional supply. Let's go back and we'll come back the next day. He says, okay, yeah, it's pretty bad. We start going back down, but what we didn't realize is the oxygen tank, mine, was malfunctioning. So for over five hours, almost six hours, I was inhaling and exhaling the same air. And I lost consciousness very close to camp four in what is called the death zone. So the death zone, this is where you sign in the small print to say if anything happens to you there, they're not obliged to come and pick you up because they're risking their lives as much as, as you are, right? And he wasn't doing well either. So he left me there. And a lot of this is hearsay. And he went to Camp 4. He got other shepherds. They came and lifted me up. We got to Camp 4. Apparently, the winds were so bad that our tent was blown off. So sleeping bags, like everything that we had, just was blown off the mountain. And he found a makeshift tent and put me there. But what he did, which potentially saved my life, he changed my oxygen tank because I had additional oxygen left me there, went to sleep in a tent with, with other shepherds. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. I was going in and out of consciousness. And the next day, there were like these six shepherds coming to with a stretcher to really pick up a body because one of them touched me. And I said, yeah, Lakpa. And he says, 
oh, you are alive. So clearly they thought I was dead, right? And I said, I am, but I'm hungry because for almost 30 hours, I had not eaten anything, you know, except for when I was conscious, a bit of goo drinking that, and he says he didn't have food, but he had water, he had a flask. And I drank that and, and I looked up because Everest is like in your face. You can see it so close. I'll share some pictures with you after this. And for the first time in my journey, I wondered if all those people that were saying I couldn't do it, were saying it wasn't for me, were right. And I think that is the lowest point in my life. It's when you start thinking the naysayers are right. When the stubbornness in you that says, I can do this, you know, keep pushing, step out of your comfort zone, you've got this, you know, fades away. I looked up and I walked down all the way to camp two and I was airlifted and I came home having given up. Although I didn't verbalize it, you know, I, I didn't write any more letters to anybody, you know, uh, to sponsor me. I was like, you know, I've been doing it on my own. And I wasn't sure I would really go back. But you, you, you become accustomed to training. I still trained. And one time my son found me in the lounge and he says to me, Mom, when are you going back to Everest? It's not, are you going back? When are you going back? You know, because he plays soccer and when they lose, I always say to him, figure out what you learned, go back, do it again. You know, what, what didn't work, dump it. You know, what worked, do it better. And for him, you know, that's actually what I'm doing. So when am I going back? And I just realized how hypocritical I'd been. So I just said 2020. So this was the year I was meant to go back. And I said 2020 because it was going to be the time that I would have saved up enough to be able to, to pay as much as uh, Everest costs, right? And I started training for 2020, and I was approached by uh, a group trying to do the Explorer Grand Slam, and they put together a proposal, which I, I passed on. And somebody that I passed that proposal to on a Friday called me and said, you know, this is very expensive, but we want to be part of this. We've got a small amount that we can contribute. Can we be part of your 2020 expedition, Explorer Grand Slam? So I said, okay. And on the Sunday, I get a call. One of the guys, the first guy to actually tell me no black African female had summited Everest because I didn't know that was the case, passed away. And that just brought 2014, 2015 in my head, 2017. And the realization once again that tomorrow is not guaranteed. He wasn't sick, you know, and he just believed I could do this. And I called these people and I said, I'm going this year. Would you still be part of this journey. It's not the Explorer Grand Slam. It's just, you know, going up Everest. Would you want to be part of this? And they said, yes. They had half, they were contributing less than half, actually, of what an Everest expedition costs. I cleaned up my bank account. For the first time, I maxed my credit card and I paid my deposit, which was more than half of what I needed. And this was three weeks before the expedition. And I decided I'll go because 2020 was not guaranteed in my head. And I told my boss, I'm leaving and I'm going, and I joined this team of, also a few things that I did differently. I talked to the person that was leading the team. I was very clear I was going to do my own race. I was going to be comfortable with the pace and be involved in every decision. I just wasn't going to get out of the tent at Camp 4 to go up because somebody whose experience says we should. I wanted to know why, you know. And, and that's exactly what we did. I wasn't anxious about the summit, you know. I was really anxious about getting to Camp 1, getting to Camp 2, and getting to Camp 4. 
the guys that I was going with, so there were three climbers and one expedition leader, the, the guy that took us, he had summited Everest eight times. They were faster than me. But on the summit day, they moved out quicker. I overtook them. I led all the way to the Hillary step almost. And it's just really it was about let me get to camp one celebrate camp two celebrate let me do me and not everybody else and and if you were following me you would notice that i did less of uh, social media a because i was broke b it was really about me more than it was about anybody else <laughs> right and what is interesting about this journey which i actually have never really shared is the fact that when i got to Kathmandu. The people said, we've received more than half of your payment, which is what I had paid, but the other amount has not been paid. And I called the sponsor and they're like, well, can we pay in installments? I'm like, who climbs Everest in installment, right? And I go there, I'm like dragging myself, but I had no choice. And the guy says, okay, so they must pay now and let's see when they will pay the next one. So they paid and when we did the first rotation at base camp, the camp manager comes and says, um, the second amount hasn't been paid. Like, and I don't have data to call the people. So I had to walk to the next little village, Gorokshep, to make a call to say, guys, you haven't paid. It's like, okay, no, no, we'll sort it out. So I just believe so strongly. Look, I am a Christian. I'm unapologetic about it. And I say it loudly that it was God's time because a lot of things were just falling into place. And it wasn't just me and my strength. It was his time, you know. All these other climbs that I attempted, which were not successful, were really stepping stones, you know, for me to be able to summit on the 16th of May, 2019. And, and one of the most profound things up there is just realizing that the sky is not the limit because suddenly the clouds were beneath me. And my mother all along saying the sky is the limit was wrong. And that's why I'm so obsessed about nudging other people to realize that their potential is not what they can see. They are extraordinarily unique and being ordinary is a choice. And for the longest time, I've wasted my life being ordinary because that's what was expected. That is the norm. If we all just aimed to be our extraordinary selves, which is what we are, the world would be a better place. Totally. Thank you so much for kind of sharing the whole story and sharing vulnerability, sharing details you've not kind of shared elsewhere. Normally, I interject more, I ask more questions, but just listening to you tell a very, I think, a very powerful story. And I think what is key for me as the first person that's hearing this version of the story, at least, right, is that often when people tell stories, they tell you the sequences of events, right, which is part of the story, right? But what is very evident is that through your journey, literally up and down Everest multiple times as well, you've crystallized learnings, not just about life, but about yourself, that then becomes part of that story. And that, that is ultimately that color and context that makes for, as I said, a, a truly kind of fascinating, powerful story, even for someone that likes to interject in conversation, <laughs> ask more questions, to just to literally just be not dumbstruck, but to be in awe of what you've managed to, to achieve. Thank you. Appreciate that. So I'd love to kind of, um, you know, you speak about the sky not being the limit and kind of your know, people that probably have, by no judgment here, but probably have some kind of ordinary life, right? I, I would probably proffer and say that many people and kind of around us in our societies 
are probably doing things or living a life that they're not 100% happy with, right? There's some kind of discontent there, right? So I'd love to kind of for you to take, you know, fast forward us, bring us back to kind of your present day where you and I spoke before and you just had an exam kind of to kind of become an even better coach, right? So <laughs> you have the story becoming a, a, you know, executive coach here. So I would love to kind of, you know, kind of chat about when you work with clients, when you speak with other people, right? And they perhaps say, you know, hey, sir, I like, I have this discontent in my life. Like, how does that conversation go? Like, where, where do you start? Like, how do you inspire or how do you guide someone to kind of ultimately realize their potential beyond just the sky being the, the limit? I think it starts with, um, you know, our why. I think once you figure out what your why is, and, and it has to be intrinsic and not extrinsic, your why doesn't change because the world around you changes. You know, once you figure out that thing that is important to you uh, is a good starting point. And also realizing that only you are here to do that thing, that purpose, and nobody else can do it better than you. We actually raised even in class to compete against the other person. I want to be number one. I want to be better than that one. But that one cannot beat who I am. Only I can be authentically me. Um, the other thing that was a revelation in my journey is figuring out that I have strengths that are unique to me and focusing on my strengths will manage my weaknesses. But if you think about how we all go through school, I'm not doing well at maths, get a, get a maths tutor, get this, let's fix that. You waste so much time trying to fix weaknesses and your strengths are not even are not being amplified to the extent that they could. So if we all focused on our strengths and when we needed to partner, let's partner with people that are great at where we, we have less strengths and actually we would form amazing teams. So just going back, I, I try and go to people figuring out what their why is, assessing what their strengths are that will help them achieve their why and also finding the right partnerships you know what partnerships do you need to get to where you need to go and also being honest with what you can and what you can't do and focusing on that and moving forward i think it's always important to also reflect and have those i find journaling a lot of mountaineers journal they also have like duct tapes where you you know when the item on something happens then then it's fresh in your mind the way you feel about it at that point is authentic it's got a way it goes to your core and it helps you move forward a lot more and i find that getting people to to reflect on the day and to also be very clear of where they are be honest with yourself. Where are you? Where do you want to go? And how do you get there? You know, do you get there on your own? Do you get there with other people? But more importantly, be prepared to invest in yourself. That's where those sacrifices and choices that we spoke about earlier come in. You can't be everything, you know. You need to make sacrifices at some point that will be for the better good to get you to your why. Yeah, totally. And I, what I love there, Sarah, is I, I often tell people that entrepreneurs, you know, want to be entrepreneurs or, or like not want to be people that start on their own kind of entrepreneurial path that reach out and say, you know, AD, like, what should I be doing there? And my number one advice is always like very closely related to what you said around that why, right? Because I think if someone does not know their why, what they neglect is 
on this journey, like everything on this journey can change, right? The business idea can change, the people around you can change, you can move to a different country, there's going to be a single common denominator, and that's going to be you, right? Exactly. And if you're not in alignment with yourself at that first step, there's always going to be friction, right? So I absolutely love that bit. Yeah. I want to kind of, uh, you know, be cognizant of your time. So kind of wrapping things up, I wonder kind of two things, right? So going from literally summiting Everest, right, which is a feat that so few people like firstly try and you're even less accomplished, right? But going something like to something like that to when you think and you translate that to kind of you're know, building a professional career, right? How do you kind of just compare or translate those you know, differences or similarities between kind of those two things? Yeah, I think life every day is about really just stepping out of your comfort zone. I think that's where success is. That's where success is in the mountains. Um, that's where success is as a business, um, as well as in, in our personal lives. The mountains have made me a better leader. You know, it, it's, it's humbled me. It's taught me servant leadership. You know, you get there and you find these shepherds that some of whom are not really educated but they are the bosses at that time. And really listening to them would dictate your summit success. Um, you also find shepherds that will only take you up to Everest Base Camp. They are quite crucial in your success, but they belong there. And you need to actually get the right partnerships to get you to uh, further than that. All these lessons have helped me shape my leadership over the years, my leadership style. But at the same time, I've been very lucky in partnering with Momentum, as an example, to have an employer that understands what I do, that buys into making a difference and helps me in the process. I think one of the things that when, when you start off in a career, it's about I need them, they don't need me, you know. And as you go through your career, you become confident of what you can bring on the table. You become confident of a little bit more than just the bottom line. At the same time, if an employer is going out of their way to meet you somewhere, you find yourself actually going the extra mile to make sure that the shareholder value is off the charts. I think for me, everything that I touch, I want to be able to make sure that it works well. It's a success in one way or another for me and for everybody around me. But I, I guess that's part of my strengths, which I'll share with you. I know maybe your viewers won't see it. Um, my strengths are futuristic, responsibility, achiever, strategic, and learner. I think understanding my strengths and what I can bring to the table gives me the confidence in the boardroom as much as it does on the mountain. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think for any listener that just wanted to kind of, you know, skip all of your kind of the, the fascinating story and just wanted to get true value, those last two minutes was fascinating. And also, I think for every employer out there, I think something you touched on there, which I think that, that I hold kind of dearly is when you can build a team and you can empower individuals to be their truest, uniquest selves and empower them to live the life that they want, that probably creates much more commercial value and shareholder value for the business and the employer than you can in any other way. Sarah, if there's anyone that wants to follow you, support what you're doing next, I know you've got loads of kind of uh, initiatives kind of going. Where do you want us to send all of those people to follow you and support you? Absolutely. I'm on social media at Sarah, S-A-R-A-Y, Kumalo, K-H-U-M-A-L-O. 
I'm on Instagram, Facebook, as well as Twitter. Um, I also have a Facebook page called Summits with a Purpose. If you love the outdoors, I've got a few people that I interview on there. I do have a website, www.sarayskumalo.com. Send a shout out there and I'll get back to you. I'm a motivational speaker and a transformational coach. If that's something that you're interested in or just knowing about climbing, I'm happy to share the little that I know or point you in the right direction. And I think based on our conversations, like, you know more than just a little. So <laughs> you're not giving yourself complete credit there. We will definitely link all of that up in the show notes. Sarah, you are absolutely fascinating individual. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's A-D-I-I at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. Cheers.